We used to talk about our job is to disrupt the disruption. If we can shorten the length of time of this disruption and get you back to that state of perceived normal, that's a good thing. That is our role as crisis communicators. But what we really wanna do is how do we transform organizations from this state of a new normal and a new growth organization. Um, and it's, it's exciting when organizations wanna do that, but unfortunately, some organizations just simply wanna go back to Monday and, and, and let's, just, let's just start over and do this again or, or, or not have to go through that again. Helping CEOs and business leaders discover the energy to perform exceptional brilliance and positively impact the lives of those around them. Be inspired by world leaders, game-changing influencers, and next-level gurus. This is the Active CEO Podcast, where the ordinary don't belong. And now your host, CEO and founder of Energy to Perform, international speaker and leadership performance coach, Craig Johns. On this episode of the Active CEO Podcast, we speak with a reputation and crisis guru who has more than 25 years of global experience managing high stakes crises, issues management, and media relations challenges for both Fortune 500 companies and winning global political campaigns. He has studied a BA political science and government communications at Florida State University and an AA General Studies at St. Petersburg College. His career has included co-leading the global risk management and crisis communications practice for Hill Knowlton Strategies. He has been Executive Director of Bill McCullen for US Senate, served in the Republic of Bulgaria as a Senior Advisor to the Prime Minister, Council of Ministers and the Labour Minister, and was the first ever Executive Director of the American Chamber of Commerce in Bulgaria. Through his various roles, our special guest has worked with major corporations such as AT&T, Target Corporation, American Airlines, The Home Depot, and Xerox, as well as major universities and global NGOs. I'm pleased to introduce to you the CEO of Kith, is the best-selling author of Critical Moments, has a passion for safeguarding reputations, is a Wall Street Journal risk and compliance panelist, and enjoys sailing, riding his bike, and unwinding through yoga. Bill Coletti. Bill, welcome to the show. Craig, thanks so much for having me. That's, a, that's a, an impressive introduction, so thank you very much. Makes me sound great. I appreciate that. <laughs> You're welcome. Your work in a world where the stakes are extremely high and image is very, very important. What was your reputation as a child and what did you dream of in the playgrounds? Oh, fabulous question. Um, you know, reputation as a child, I think it was, uh, it was kind of, I grew up an only child. Um, so I think I had a um, curiosity about everybody above me, curiosity about everybody older than me. I think sometimes that became a little bit of a pest, uh, that curiosity. So, so I think there's a, a reputational element of that. Um, not overly a joiner. I didn't join a lot of activities until I got into high school and, and then sort of found, hit my stride with politics and government and was involved in student government and things like that. But then I, so I think at the end of my academic career is, is really sort of an aspiring 
leader trying to figure it out. So, so I think the reputation sort of evolved from curious to trying to channel that into leadership in the second half of my uh, early years. So you talk about there your your own kind of thinking about political and government side of things when you're in high school. Were you someone that were on the school council, or you know how did that kind of play out? Yeah, so it's a it's a neat story. So yeah, I was student government president of my high school, um, and I was the 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 way that I got introduced into partisan politics or electoral politics was that I as student government president, you know, as a senior in high school. I wanted the high school students to vote like the adults voted. So we were, you know, 15, 16, 17 years old in high school, not quite up to voting age yet. And so I went down to the supervisor of the elections office and I said, can we get voting machines here at our school so that we can vote like the grownups vote? And so they were said, sure, that's awesome. We love that. It's training and then we can do some voter registration. So it was kind of a win-win for everybody. Our students got to vote and in, in using technology um, way back when that's that's not cutting edge, but at the time it was sort of innovative, uh, which was exciting. And then the people at the supervisor of elections office introduced me to some candidates. And that's how I got my first opportunity to run a campaign, um, you know, way back when. But it all started with wanting the student body to be able to vote, you know, like the grownups vote. <laughs> what a great opportunity for the students and, and for yourself at that time. Yeah, it was great. What activities did you do while at university that helped prepare you for your career in politics and most notably reputational management? Yeah. Um, you know, so what, I was active in a fraternity, um, but I was also more active in college Republicans and spent a lot of time working um, and really trying to grow a, an organization um, there, which is, you know, college Republicans in the U.S. is, is a, you know, it's a kind of a nerdy little little band of folks that was there. So we did a nice job of growing the organization. We were involved in the 1988 election cycle. And so there was a presidential campaign um, that was going on. And so that was kind of exciting time to be there. Um, and then I just really I got involved in student government. I ran for student government president. I, I lost uh, it, at university, but always was involved in the, a notion of leadership and and tried to do it differently than than our peers. A lot of our peers did it to sort of pad their resume or I, I really, really early on sort of bought into this notion of service um, and having ideas much like I was trying to do in high school with the election machines of being in service of people. Um, and then after in college is when I became involved in some some additional political races directly. So that's that's where it all came from, sort of that evolution of ideas. But for me, it's it's I've, I've always until very recently, been very enchanted by politics and thinking that service is really good. It's, it's a little bit of a turnoff now, particularly in the United States, which is disheartening because I'd spent so much of my career involved in it. So you know, obviously being in, involved in those political campaigns is, is very, very fascinating, I'm sure. How did you manage the voices coming at you from both sides of the story? Yeah. Um, I think early on, so I have often said up until recently, in the past 10 years or so, I had been much more interested in politics than policy. And so I was, there were some really important things to me from a policy standpoint, issues and topics. And so I was really, 
I didn't really get hung up on the left and the right and sort of the, the dynamics of the issues. And so those voices coming at me in a political context, um, I was curious about them. I was curious about what was going on in the left and what was going on in the right. I was more interested in how do you move 50% plus one of the population? How do you move that forward? That's really what was curious to me. The way I managed you know, voices coming at me is, is um, I, I've always believed in sort of leadership by stereo. If I'm getting complaints on the left channel and complaints on the right channel, I must be doing sort of something kind of right going straight down the middle. And so that's, that's the way I sort of thought about uh, leadership and cause you have to disappoint people in politics in any leadership role. You disappoint people with your decisions that you make, but you also, um, you know, excite people and empower people um, at the same time. And so if you're doing a little bit of left, a little bit of the right, it makes sense in the middle. That's uh, not a bad philosophy to take. Now, you're getting yourself ingrained in the American political scene. But then in 1995, you moved to Sofia, Bulgaria and became the first ever American Chamber of Commerce um, sort of executive director there or CEO in executive Bulgaria. Executive director, yeah. How did that opportunity come about to move halfway around the world? So for anybody that's been involved in political campaigns and in the US we're on a typically a two year cycle every every even even numbered November is when our election season is typically. And I had finished doing a race in November of 1994 and almost as you as I said every year for the eight years eight cycles previous as I said well that's the last time I ever want to do that just cuz it's a it's it's a it's a grueling marathon ironman in its own race in its own sense of a campaign and you say you never want to do that again. And so finished that in November, um, had this opportunity to join um, someone that I was dating at the time to go to Eastern Europe and go to Bulgaria. And so the American Chamber of Commerce opportunity came up when I figured out that I wasn't a very good poet, nor was I a very good snow skier, and I needed to go get a real job because I that being a poet and a snow skier wasn't going to get it done for me. So um, just through social circles, met the American ambassador uh, to Bulgaria at the time, and he said, there's no such thing as a chamber of commerce here. I had a little bit of trade association background, and I said, well, I'll do that. And so for the uh, whopping sum of $1,000 um, a month, I became the executive director of the American Chamber of Commerce, and we grew it from a club of about 12 people to over 100 active members um, in, in a growing economy in Bulgaria at that time. So it was really exciting times. But networking is the simple answer to your question. <laughs> so as part of networking, what was the most rewarding project you worked on in this role? Um, you know, I think the most rewarding project there were twofold. One is 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 simply the growth in membership. Is that we brought a bunch of new people to trying to grow both the Bulgarian economy and the American economy by linkages and partnerships between the two countries. So I think it started with twelve and wound up with a couple hundred, with a hundred or so members, um, and and they all benefited because some of them were. American representatives or American companies with representatives in Bulgaria and others that wanted to trade with an American partner. So I'm most proud of that. And that's not one singular event, but it was the networking that was created from that growth of the of the membership. 
Um, a very specific moment is that, you know, our, our 4th of July, a national day celebration that we did in Bulgaria, um, where we got to invite a bunch of Bulgarian kids out to a, a uh, uh, this beautiful park that was there hosted by the ambassador. And we just had a really good old fashioned American celebration with, you know, hamburgers, hot dogs, fireworks and the red, white and blue kind of stuff. And so it was a neat, neat way to share. Um, and we did it. We did kind of did it right. And it was just a nice, good old fashioned party and it was nice and so i got got to, got to do some stuff with some cool kids back then yeah, i hear lots of great things about sophia so i'm curious to know what life was like living in bulgaria in the 1990s um the best bread we got uh, because there was a um there was a drought there and there was also a shortage of uh, wheat flour is the best bread we got is what we imported from Kentucky Fried Chicken. And um, in the, in the, in the little, if you know those little square, <laughs> bis, they're not even quite a biscuit. I don't even know what that's called, a roll, I guess. That was the white bread uh, that we had. Um, so, I mean, it was a challenge. When we first got there, you know, it was difficult. The economy had taken a downturn in, 90, in 94 and we're just sort of creeping out of it in 95, 96. Um, so it was a, it was a, it was a, in a relative context, it was a difficult time. Again, the bread shortage that was there, um, but it was at a personal level, it was a lot of fun. You had an esprit de corps of expats, and um, our we had a balance of friends that were expatriate friends as well as Bulgarian friends. But among the ex expatriate friends, I was very refreshed that it was. Uh, not a lot of um, keeping up with the Joneses. Every nobody, you didn't compete. So that would have been in the early 20s, 30s of my career. Is everybody wasn't competing to have a bigger BMW or have a better car or a better house or whatnot? Is that everybody was on a nice level playing field? And so the the nature of your character was more important than the size of your car. And so I thought that was a real refreshing um, difference. Um, but it was it was difficult. You know, language skills were challenging, but amazing people and. Uh, I loved being an expatriate. You managed to establish yourself in Bulgaria for a further five years. This is when you really began to hone your negotiation and communication skills, including serving as the senior advisor to the prime minister. What type of work were you involved in with the prime minister and how did that relationship work? Yeah, so it was, this was the early days of Bulgaria transitioning into joining some of the the Atlantic organizations and the first step of that was um, NATO um, and so um, then there was a transition and in ultimately into the European Union um, that was there and so there were structural requirements um, that were precursors to ultimate EU EU um, extension and and one of the things that they needed was a improved communications infrastructure. How do you actually tell the story of the government and what the government is doing and, and telling a positive story? He had had a very, the tradition had been to have a very tactical spokesperson um, who basically just was a mouthpiece for the prime minister and the government. We went in and tried to structure a new, like traditional, like a White House model where there would be a strategic director of communications and then a tactical spokesperson. We set up a system where we, we, we created more strategy and we created more message discipline um, where we actually were trying to tell stories daily um, with what the government was trying to accomplish, not just responding to inquiries from reporters. So really a, a 
step from from tactical to strategic and and proactive instead of reactive. So those were the first those were the things that we typically worked on. Um, you know, the interacting with the prime minister is he was not an English speaker and I was not a sufficient Bulgarian speaker. So everything was typically through his staff. Um, but it was uh, creating these systems was was really kind of what it was all about. And I think he certainly appreciated it. They had some challenging times keeping governments at that point, and a lot of transitory governments um, at that point. But it uh, it worked. It was a nice relationship and made some really great friends along the way. And talking about create, um, curating stories there, what was the biggest lesson you kind of learned during that period of your time around reputational and crisis management? Yeah. Great question. You know, I think that the, the the greatest lesson is that stories are best told simply. We we were trying to, in a in an emerging economy, privatize a pension system and create a stock market. And there was inherent skepticism domestically. But there was also inherent skepticism globally about about stock markets and privatization. And and there was a similar debate going on about privatization in the, in the United States about Social Security and whatnot. And so I think the, the, the best solution there that I learned about, you know, dealing with these challenges was that, that you know, the best best stories are simply told. Uh, we could have confused everybody with what privatization of the pension fund means. We had lots of resources if anybody wanted to dig into it, but but telling simple stories around what it what the impact that it would have on one particular individual um, was that was the most successful thing that we did. Not directly related to reputation per se, um, but really directly related to you know how do you tell stories in a in a smart way, led by one person. In this case, it was the Minister of Labor, um, and they were kind of driving this change on the behalf of the government. But simple stories. Moving forward a few years and a return to the USA, you landed a long-term role at Hill Knowlton Strategies. What key personality characteristics did you feel allowed you to really strengthen your position as a crisis and reputational management expert? For myself, I, I think it is a calmness and a centeredness and really trying to be self-aware. Uh, so I've tried to craft in my life a sense of self-awareness and, and, and the perceptions that people have of me. Also, the sense of sort of the willingness to tell truth to power, because if you're, you find yourselves in these corporate crisis engagements is that most leaders, unfortunately, are surrounded by, by folks that, 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 that give good counsel, but there's, a, but there's a perspective and a point of view that comes with their good counsel. And so I try to do it just as clearly and transparently and unvarnished as necessary. So I think that the big key for me was, was truth to power, um, trying to just be pretty self-aware of, of that this is a pretty bad day for most people and to understand and empathize um, with sort of where they stand. In your eyes, what does reputation constitute when looking at a business versus a person? Um, you know, it, it doesn't hurt as much when it's a person. When, when, when there's a reputational challenge for an individual, and I think we've seen a lot of that Recently, with the Me Too movement on both sides, the reputation of the accused and the reputation of the accuser 
um, are both directly impacted by that. Um, and so I think it hurts more, frankly, in a personal context. I think in a corporate context is that it is a little slower and more difficult to change the axis of reputation. I think it can be changed, but I think it takes a longer time to do that. So I think the it's it's to your to your point, it's personal when it's an individual. I think a corporation typically it gets personified into that of the CEO or the senior leader that's there. Um, but I think that the um, it's it's just more simply more painful when we have individuals that are going through these challenges. So what mindset and behaviors separate the leaders that perform best during a crisis? Yeah, awesome question. So for me, I love the phrase that the crucible of crisis doesn't develop your leadership, it reveals it. And I think those that do best in crisis are those that are not surprised by it, are those that have actually thought about the cons- or considered the potential of what if. Everything is not always going to be good. You're not always going to meet quarterly growth numbers or you're not always going to be at the top of the pyramid doing great things. So leaders that that recognize the crucible of crisis is a potential and that they have paused, reflected, and asked themselves simple questions of if that was me, how would I handle it? Um, and so that's that's the key differentiation as people that are prepared. The other thing that's there is a sense of humanity. Uh, the, some of the great leaders in the work that I've done with Home, Home Depot in particular, the leaders, the CEO there, you know, really following a data breach made it really, really clear that, you know, people are confused and scared and we have to reassure them and, and not a bunch of corporate jargon. So, and I say, you know, humanity means they communicate in a human way, they empathize in a human way and they, they, they let their natural human emotions drive responses as opposed to sort of the corporate desires. And so those, those awareness that it has the potential in doing a little bit of work to say, what if this would happen to me preparation? And then when in the moment, you know, being self selfless and focused on sort of the human elements of the response, those are really two strong traits. So talking about that proactive crisis or even reputational management, what sort of strategies do you tend to put in place with CEOs or companies to help them figure out, okay, well, what could occur and how can we deal with it? Yeah. So the, one of the big underpinnings of every, all the work that we do at Kith that we're really focused on is this notion of an, of an equation of crisis success. And I've articulated that the key differentiator between good and great crisis response is speed. You need to fill the vacuum with the, with, for, of, to, for stakeholders' expectations. The stakeholders have an expectation and you have to fill that or someone will fill it for you. So speed is the difference between good and great crisis response. The way that you get speed is not simply by being fast, but the way you get speed is for an organization to have a really crystal clear understanding around mission and values. And, and mission and values gets knocked about a good bit and sort of being kind of woo-woo and it doesn't really manifest into the daily operations of an organization. But I believe that mission and values and standing for something you know, bigger than any individual is critical. So getting clear on mission and values 
and you add that to clear understanding around chain of command and understanding both the formal and the informal ways that decisions get made when you're under pressure and in these sort of dynamic crisis situations, you add mission and values to an understanding around chain of command, that then equals speed. And so the organizations that that do this best and the advice that we give our clients is to really work on that journey of mission and values, the formal and informal chain of command. Interesting. So what, what kind of body language and messages are you looking for when you analyze a CEO's ability to handle a crisis? So we do a lot of, a lot of video training, media training, where we actually videotape and sit down and actually talk about it. And talk about, you know, someone will pretend to be an interviewer or a media or a stakeholder or a shareholder, whatever the case may be. And we so, you know, the, the body language is very obvious. It's hard to hide. And I'm sure as you're as you're aware, it's hard to hide on videotape. And so if you tape it and then you share it and have a dialogue around that. Um, and so what I'm looking for is a lot of basic human dynamics of just sort of open hands and open shoulders and, a, and an openness and and a, and a warmth that comes through. And that's hard for some people. And that's that's, that's not an easy, easy trait. Um, but I think using video as a tactic and as a tool is, is very, very beneficial. But kind of what I'm looking for is a. Uh, a curiosity and an, and an understanding that people are confused and a willingness to have the patience to explain as necessary. Hmm. So how does the corporate crisis impact a company's reputation? Because we talk about it takes a long time to build a reputation, but it can be changed in an instant, in a moment. Sure. You know, so... The, the impact of a crisis on individual organizations is um, very often finite. You know, there's a, there's a situation and organizations move on. And so I think what, what we try to do is work with, our, with the clients that we work with from a reputation management context, either post-crisis or, or in, um, in advance of a crisis, is the goal there is to really build this reservoir of goodwill so that when a crisis event happens, the public or the people that matter most to the organization say, well, that's not the company I know. That, that, that must be an anomaly. And so by creating that reservoir of goodwill, that preserves and maintains your license to operate. And having a license to operate means as a company wants to move on to a different marketplace or wants to move on to a different business unit, that the the barriers to entry are lower for them, so that they can they can if they're doing a great job providing a service in this vertical, the marketplace is willing to accept them in a different vertical. And so I think that the reputational impact always has to be measured and understood. And I think when needed and when appropriate, organizations should apologize when needed and when appropriate, um, you know, organizations need to explain and defend. Um, and so, so it's not like there's one silver bullet that organizations need to do. They just need to be thoughtful that reputation is formed over the long time, over the long term. It's the expectation of what you do next. And, and you need to be, you really need to understand that and be self-aware. And that's what we shared in the book is this concept of, of being aware, um, about what, what, what the, what the marketplace thinks about you. So in your book, Critical Moments, you speak about the seven levers of reputation. 
Can you explain to the audience what they are and why you decided they were the most important levers? Yeah. So there's a ton of scholarship about what are the actual elements, the factors that impact, directly impact reputation. And after doing a lot of reading and a lot of thinking about this and then just practically thinking what organizations can control, I sort of came up with these seven levers um, that, that impact, that, that, that organizations can have the most impact. And, and so I'll walk through them and I, I don't want to bog us down too deeply, Craig, but happy to, to unpack them further if you want. You know, so there are these seven things that organizations can do in order to, to grow your reputation. You know, the, the first one is this notion of employee engagement. You need to make sure that your employee, employee advocacy, employee endorsement, making sure that your employees can, can evangelize what you stand for and say good things about your organization. The second is directly related to the innovations and products and services that you're that you do is that not just so there's are two separate components. One is the products and services that you have. Do they meet my needs? And then innovation is the organization doing things that it's innovative for me in problems I didn't even know I had solving things separately. So those are those are two that fit very closely together, current products and then innovative products uh, in the future. Leadership privilege. Uh, which is this notion of it is a privilege for the CEO or the leadership team to run this organization. And that has to pull through. Organizations have to understand and the public has to understand that the leadership truly believes that this is a privilege, not a burden um, to be there. Financial strength and performance is that at the end of the day, these are for-profit entities for the most part, and that that for-profitness and that for-profit nature, they need to be financially solvent and they need to be moving the organization forward. And I think I hit all seven. And so that's so leadership privilege is the one I think is really sort of critical. So it's brilliant. Thank you. Crisis can be defined in, in many different ways and especially the success of it. How do we really know that we have succeeded in overcoming a crisis? Well, I'd, I'd love to get your perspective. I'm going to sort of turn this question back on you. So I'd love to get your perspective and your observation on that. And so, you know, I, I think there is a common belief. It's getting back to normal. In um, whatever normal was, and so um, there are some organizations that find themselves, particularly retail, that find themselves in a perpetual state of crisis. There is always something going on, and so I've worked for Target, Home Depot, and and observe I observe Walmart really closely. Is that you know there is always something happening because you just got lots of footprint, lots of employees, and so there's always something happens. So I think the goal and the desire is to get back to normal, get back to strategy, get back to plan. That's the goal at the end of that. What I've what I've realized is that there's got to be something more um, to that. There's got to be something more than just simply getting back to normal. But before I go that, I would just love to turn the question on you as you think about leaders that you've worked with and the CEOs you've been exposed to that have found themselves in a crisis. You know, what is it? What is it? When do they think they're done? When do they think they're out of the woods? I think it's when they understand that people felt heard and felt mm -hmm. that they've been listened to and mm -hmm. feel comfortable whether they like the change or not or, or, the, or the outcome of the crisis, as long as they feel comfortable that they've been heard and listened to. And I think it's ability to understand that. 
going back to normal is obviously very difficult because in that period of crisis, generally the company has moved on as well. So it's, it is a challenge to go back to what would be normal because potentially that's taking a step back. Um, so I think it's that progression and that you are now receiving feedback or um, from whether it be your employees or whether it be your customers that they actually feel comfortable in the way it's moving forward again. So do they have they come back and gone, you know what, we love what you're doing. Thanks for making that change. And it, I suppose it's getting that understanding. Um, because in your head as a CEO or leader, you're constantly having a story about, well, have I actually achieved that? What are people thinking? Have we overcome it? Because reputation cannot exist without a crisis and crisis cannot exist without a reputation. So how are they linking together? And what's that reputation feel like? So I suppose in, in some cases it might be around, we don't, the, the media coverage has dropped off or, or the chatter about what happened has dissolved. Um, maybe an indication of whether that crisis has been not averted, but has been, you know, successfully overcome. Yeah, you, you know, it's 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 sometimes disappointing to me that some organizations that I'm aware of and some that I've worked with is that they don't take advantage because you just described a very clear aspirational there is a better state post-crisis than the previous state but there are so many companies that simply just want to go back to monday they just want to go back to normal they don't they don't they, they this was such an event and such an anomalous event they don't they don't take advantage to do that growth which is the paraphrasing of what i what i heard you say they don't take advantage of that and that's where we really want to focus the next phase of our firm is talking about we, we, we used to talk about our job is to disrupt the disruption. If we can shorten the length of time of this disruption and get you back to that state of perceived normal, that's a good thing. That is our role as crisis communicators. But what we really want to do is how do we transform organizations from this state of a new normal and a new growth organization. Um, and it's, it's exciting when organizations want to do that, but unfortunately some organizations just simply want to go back to Monday and, and, and let's just, let's just start over and do this again or, or, or not have to go through that again. Um, but that's increasingly, increasingly difficult to do. With adversity, there always comes opportunity. And I think that's, that's the important part you're, you're talking about there is, you know, your reputation lies on how you overcome something and move forward, right? So it's not around how do you overcome something and go back to what you always did, because that's probably why you ended up with a crisis in the first place. And we, and we, while I am, I, I run a, a business and it's a wonderful business. It is frustrating when people call back, um, and, and have this, have something comparable to what they had happened before. 